Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 308, A Thirst for Reform. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Megan, Claire, and Carrie for signing up already. Across the North Sea, in Scandinavia, a man named Harold Greycloak was struggling for dominance in the region. And he wasn't just any man. He was the son of Eric Bloodaxe and Gunhild, and his fight brought him in direct conflict with King Hakon of Norway. You might remember Hakon as the young Scandinavian prince who had been fostered by Athelstan himself, and how he gained the throne by ousting his brother, Eric Bloodaxe. You might also remember how that led to Eric seeking his fortunes elsewhere, which in turn resulted in a whole bunch of headaches for England. Well, even though Eric was now dead, the issues that marked his life still continued to have impact throughout Europe. And as for right now, that was resulting in Harold looking to reclaim what had once belonged to his father and what he felt rightfully belonged to him. So he met the current king of Norway in battle. And in the end, King Hakon was killed, and Harold son of Eric Bloodaxe, claimed the throne of Norway. And with that, the last living foster child of King Athelstan of England had died. The era where the major figures of Western Europe were all raised together in the English court was over, and it was the line of Eric Bloodaxe and Gunhild that had brought it to an end. But back in England, we were having an entirely different dynastic problem. King Edgar of England had a wife and child, but he wasn't with them. Instead, he'd absconded to his residence at Kemsing, and he'd taken a nun with him. Her name was Wolfthrith. Now, unfortunately, there's no record of what Wolfthrith thought about all this. Nunneries during this period were still being packed with the extra children of nobles, and many of the women who resided within them hadn't chosen lives of quiet contemplation and celibacy for themselves. So it's not impossible that Wolfthrith welcomed the escape. But it also would have been very difficult, or perhaps even impossible, for the young nun to refuse the king. Wolfthrith was a person with a story of her own. But unfortunately, we don't know it. But... While Edgar's wife and his new son, Edward, were, I assume, at home at Winchester, King Edgar was with a nun from Wilton Abbey. And they weren't sitting around praying, or, I don't know, contemplating the Eucharist, because it wasn't long before Wolfthrith fell pregnant. Now, apparently, the king stayed with her throughout the entire pregnancy, which meant that, since the business of court doesn't stop, Matters of the kingdom were likely being handled at Kemsing from 962 to 963. But there's a lot more to the Kingdom of England than the king's strange dating habits. And before Edgar ran off with a nun, the main story of the kingdom was one of reform. The Benedictine reformers, men like Archbishop Dunstan and Bishop Oswald, were looking to make their mark on the ecclesiastical structure of English life. And that work wasn't going to stop just because the king decided he needed to get his godly freak on. So, perhaps taking advantage of the king's inattention, 
Bishop Oswald decided to make a few strategic and, frankly, quite bold moves. He acquired two more religious houses, one near Bristol and another in East Anglia. And he was determined that these communities would be part of his push for Benedictine reform. So he placed a lot of attention on staffing them with the right kind of people, people who shared his vision. But the thing is that Oswald's perspective was still catching on in England, so there are only so many local monks that he could reach out to. And to solve this problem, Oswald pulled a few ecclesiastical strings on the continent. And he must have had a lot of friends there, because the man who answered the call wasn't just some random French monk. On the other side of the line was none other than Abbo of Fleury, one of the most learned and recognized religious scholars of the age. To put this in perspective, this would be like putting out a call saying, I need someone for a walk-on role in my high school play, and then Sir Patrick Stewart shows up. What happened here was completely bonkers, but it was also one hell of an opportunity for Oswald. Abbo was basically like having a superhero on staff. And in response to this windfall, Oswald declared that Abbo should be sent to the religious foundation at Ramsey in East Anglia. And with this move, Oswald is giving us an insight into why Archbishop Dunstan chose him as his successor at Worcester. Because this was brilliant. And for the reformers, appointing Abbo at Ramsey was a slam dunk from like half court. You see, even after all of this time, East Anglia was still a bit of an odd duck. It was close to the English-dominated territories, but the years of Danish rule had left their mark, and culturally, the region was distinct from the south. And as far as Christianity was concerned, the region was pretty wild and woolly, and definitely in need of reformation. But it was more than just fixing East Anglia. You see, East Anglia was at the edge of the Dane law, and it didn't have a history of successful rebellions like, say, Northumbria had. So if the church reformers wanted to start making inroads into the Dane law, East Anglia was a good way to start that. Furthermore, the Fens hadn't yet been drained, so it was kind of a difficult place to live. Consequently, the population around the region of Ramsey was still fairly small and was generally neglected, which meant that it was quiet and unglamorous. It was what most people would call boring, but Oswald recognized it as the perfect location for a house dedicated to Benedictine reform. But Oswald also knew that every club needs a DJ, and that's why Abbo went to Ramsey to teach. And news of this appointment was like a bomb going off in the religious and intellectual world of England. Thinkers and devotees flocked to the monastery for a chance to learn from the continental superstar. And Ramsey, this little community in the middle of nowhere, suddenly became a major hub for monastic education. Now Abbo only stayed there a few years. But a few years was all he needed. What he started there had a ripple effect that was immediately transforming into a tidal wave. His students at Ramsey were now the cream of the crop, and religious houses were seeking them out to hold significant positions within their own walls. Which meant that in short order, major monastic communities like those at Worcester, Winchcombe, Penshore, and Evesham all acquired Ramsey-educated monks for their communities, who in turn began to teach Benedictine rule to the members of those communities. And with that, Oswald and Abbo had orchestrated a cultural revolution within religious England. Benedictine rule was no longer a political movement within England. It had become the premier school of thought in the region. 
and these changes went well beyond the kingdom. What happened at Ramsey was so influential that you can actually trace a straight line from Abbo's work there to the influential religious community at Evesham to, in turn, the 11th century growth of monasticism in the north, and then finally to the growth of Benedictine monasticism in Denmark following the conquest. What happened in these quiet, boring fens was Abbo and Oswald developing a new English religious tradition, and one that would last hundreds of years. And this English tradition sprung from the mind of a Frankish thinker and was born out of Scandinavian-dominated East Anglia. It's a distinctly European story. And it was all quietly happening behind the scenes, starting in 962. Meanwhile, the king was still at Kemsing. But as is the way with these things, in 963, the big day came and Wolfthrith gave birth to a baby girl named Edith. Afterwards, Wolfthrith was free to return to Wilton Abbey, and she did so, and brought Edith with her. And with this little escapade come full circle, King Edgar returned to his courtly duties. But you have to wonder how his courtiers and the members of the Watanagamot felt. For example, had they begun to think that maybe they were a bit too harsh on Edwig the Fair's coronation night festivities? After all, evidence suggests that one of the big hopes for Edgar's reign was that he would be a godly king who would bring about ecclesiastical reform. But even the most talented biographer would find it pretty hard to spin the episode with Wolfthrith as a godly act. I mean, the best thing you could say about it was that Wolfthrith and Edgar appear to have been on good terms after her return to Wilton. And we can hope that this is evidence that it wasn't a violent, forceful event. But at the same time... As soon as she gave birth, Wolfrith returned to her abbey. And if she had freely run off with a king because she didn't want to live as a nun, then why was she going back to that life so quickly? And then there's the money. Directly after Wolfrith returned to Wilton, King Edgar began giving the abbey significant land grants and financial support. And that certainly would create an incentive for Wolfrith to be friendly to the king, or at least incentive for her boss, the abbess, to encourage her to stay friendly. We can't know what happened over the course of that year. But even taken in the best light, one where Edgar broke Wolfrith out of her abbey, they had a child, but then they got buyer's remorse, so she went back with her new daughter. And that is the best light. Even in that light, this doesn't look good. And for Archbishop Dunstan, the defiling of nuns, who were the wives of God, could not be allowed to stand without answer. Something had to be done. The king had to be punished for his transgressions. And so, the archbishop declared that King Edgar, for seven years, couldn't wear his crown. That's right. In the tradition of justice as applied to the wealthy and powerful, King Edgar was given a pretty gentle slap on the wrist. And I'm sure Edgar was, I don't know, mildly embarrassed, like for a few days. But the astounding frailty of justice in the face of power aside, it can't be denied that things were getting a little weird in the English halls of power. And the record suggests that this didn't stop with Wolfthrith. Even though Edgar had to set aside the nun and allow her to return to Wilton Abbey, the king apparently still had a thirst. He was crawling the walls at court. And eventually, he heard stories of a staggeringly beautiful noble daughter who just happened to live in a town that was near Winchester, called Andover. Perfect. 
So the king ordered that the girl be brought to him for the purpose of becoming his concubine. And the girl's noble parents, who were concerned about this prospect for their daughter, hatched a plan. Instead of their daughter, they had a pretty bonded servant who was serving in their household. So they sent her to the king instead. And since she'd been tasked with servicing the king at night, in the darkness of his bedchamber, the hope was that no one would be the wiser. But there was a problem. She was still a servant. So when Don approached, the servant girl got up to leave. And the king asked where she was going and why. And she said, to perform the daily labor for my mistress. And with that, the jig was up. The king had realized that he'd been scrumping with a commoner and not the noble girl that he ordered and became incensed. Upon realizing what she'd done, the girl fell to her knees and cried out for his help. She told the king of how terrible her situation was, how her masters were cruel, and how much she suffered. She pled that the king grant her her freedom. And while King Edgar was indignant at the situation, he also felt pity for the girl and was irritated that the noble family thought to trick him. And so, smiling sternly, he declared his ruling. He ordered that the girl be released from her servitude, and he cared not what her masters would think of this. But he wasn't granting her her freedom. She wasn't free. The king declared that he would take her on as his permanent mistress. So the servant girl just traded one master for another. And as for those nobles, well, they got to keep their daughter, but they lost a valuable servant. And now that same servant had been elevated by her proximity to the king. All in all, this was a pretty bad day for everyone. Well, everyone but the king. And much like the Coronation Three-Way of Edwig the Fair, you might be wondering where this story comes from and why we're being told about it. I mean, out of everything that was going on, why did this story survive? Well, much of this story survives thanks to our old friend, William of Malmesbury. And he's a key source in the life of King Edgar. And in his telling of it, Malmesbury hints that he's not entirely convinced of these lascivious stories that surround Edgar. Stating, quote, There are some persons, indeed, who endeavor to dim his exceeding glory by saying that in his earlier years he was cruel to his subjects and libidinous in respect of virgins, end quote. And on first blush, that does make it sound like there is some cabal of dissenters who are spreading libel. But later in his writing, Malmesbury reveals that he also seems to think that Edgar's virtue checkbook just needed a little accounting. His ending thesis on the king boils down to an unsteady, well, Edgar was a saint, so obviously he was a good guy on balance. So it's hard to know exactly where William fell on these stories. But most importantly for historians is the fact that some of these rumors of King Edgar's exploits are reflected in other sources. For example, the story of Edgar and the nun Wolfthrith is part of the story of St. Edith, the patron saint of Wilton Abbey, who, according to the tales, was the child of King Edgar and nun Wolfthrith. But as it stands right now, there are scholars on both sides of the issue on Edgar's character. On one side, you have historians arguing that William was basically writing a creepy Harlequin romance. And on the other, you have scholars who believe that William was faithfully recounting an oral history that itself was grounded in fact. And I can't help but wonder if it was a coincidence that on that same year, the same year when he'd returned from his brief career as a nun snatcher and did God knows what with unfree servant girls, King Edgar decided to appoint someone new to the powerful and influential bishopric of Winchester. 
because this time, Edgar didn't pick someone who would gently try and nudge the kingdom into Benedictine reform through things like bureaucratic maneuvering, as Archbishop Dunstan was doing, or through educational reforms, as Bishop Oswald was doing. No, this time, King Edgar selected a well-known Benedictine firebrand. Someone full of fiery rhetoric and decisive action. And someone that Edgar was quite familiar with, as it turned out, because he'd earlier served as Edgar's personal tutor. He appointed Athelwald as the Bishop of Winchester. So now we have three very powerful Benedictine reformers holding influential ecclesiastical positions in England. And all three were able to leverage their tenures to train a new generation of monks in the Benedictine style. And they were also establishing new religious houses, reforming old ones, and laying down a common form of religious observances. Moreover, their influence was amplified by the fact that they were all supported by the king, who himself was a Benedictine reformer and had been raised as a child by one of these powerful bishops. Oh, and remember Athelstan Half-King, the elder men of East Anglia? Well, he retired to the monastery at Glastonbury, where he eventually died. But his son, Athelwald, was the new elderman of East Anglia. And he too was a Benedictine reformer. And he was actually a key benefactor of Oswald and Abbo's monastery at Ramsey. And importantly, every one of these figures knew how the levers of power worked and how to wield them to meet their goals. The pendulum of England was finally swinging in the church's direction. But that being said... The push for reform was largely restricted to monasteries. Records show that a lot of the action that was happening was in those religious houses. But as for the churches and cathedrals, they were largely left out of the widespread reformation that we've been seeing. And that may be because churches and cathedrals weren't just places of worship. They were also the administrative and spiritual centers of the powerful religious cults on the island. Cults that directly served the interests of the most influential dynasties in the kingdom. And it's important to remember with these dynasties that we're not just talking about a bunch of rich people. We're talking about a class of people who literally had personal war bands full of heavily armed young men trained to kill. It's also important to remember that it wasn't just the lower noble dynasties that had these cults. Even the House of Wessex had its own cults operating in Minsters. For example, you might remember that Old Minster functioned as the center of the royal cult for the West Saxon kings of old, and that New Minster was the center of Edward the Elder's royal cult. The point that I'm driving at here is that Archbishop Dunstan and Bishop Oswald had hundreds of pointy reasons to leave the Minsters out of this. So of course, they were going about reform through different means. But apparently, Bishop Athelwald didn't get that memo. Or maybe he just didn't care. Athelwald was a famous firebrand, after all, and he'd just been given a bishopric. And not just any bishopric. He was given Winchester. Which meant that Old Minster and New Minster were under his control. And these Minsters were an embarrassment. They had an ongoing feud that rivaled any scene in Animal House. They weren't just fighting over land. The communities at these minsters would actually chant their hymns loudly at each other with the intent of throwing off their rivals' services. This fight was so petty and so out of control that both institutions had long since relinquished any sense of spiritual dignity. It was just an all-out fight. 
And as for their rituals, they also had their own peculiar style of observances that weren't in line with what the rest of England was doing, and certainly wasn't in line with the Benedictine rules. Oh, and as a cherry on top, they were staffed by clerks, not monks. But despite all of this, Archbishop Dunstan had opted to keep his nose out of it. But these minsters weren't under Dunstan's direct control. They were under Bishop Athelwald's. And maybe it was the result of an abundance of confidence that comes from never being beaten and left for dead in a cesspit. Or maybe it was the fact that he knew he had the support of the king, having been Edgar's personal tutor. Whatever it was, Bishop Athelwald decided that he was going to reform these institutions whether they liked it or not. And his message was clear. The days where minsters would be run by clerks and treated as private fiefdoms of wealth and not God were over. They would now be run by monks trained in the Benedictine style, and they would have their religious observances brought in line with the rest of English Christianity. Bishop Athelwald doesn't do things by half measures, and Edgar appears to have been right on board. In fact, he was so supportive of Athelwald's plan that he sent a letter seeking papal support. And in 964, just one year after Athelwald was installed in the bishopric, he put his scheme into motion. The clerks of New and Old Minster were ejected, every single one, and they were replaced by monks from Athelwald's own monastery at Abingdon. These minsters would now be brought in line with Benedictine rules. But the record isn't clear in exactly how this was carried out. And that's a problem, because there are a few hints that the clerks didn't go willingly. I know that's shocking, right? And some scholars have argued that Bishop Athelwald's ejection of the clerks may actually have been violent. And I don't think that's particularly surprising. Most people don't like getting fired, especially from a cush job that you were supposed to have for life. And these clerks weren't just losing their income. They were also losing whatever church property they managed to privatize over the years and then seize for themselves. That wasn't going to be a popular move with them. I mean, if the government suddenly declared that it was taking control of the radio waves because the private corporations had abused their position or they are failing to uphold the standards that we expected, could you imagine Virgin or Clear Channel going quietly? No, they'd fight tooth and nail to retain their dominance. And I suspect the same thing was happening here. Furthermore, the clerks appear to have brought the fight into the court of public opinion. The famed historian Aelfric noted a few decades later that the actions taken by Athelwald were so unpopular that they even damaged King Edgar's reputation. Bishop Athelwald's war with the clerks was a costly one, but that wasn't about to stop him. And once he had the two most powerful minsters in the south as his trophies, Bishop Athelwald moved on to smaller churches and cathedrals under his purview. And in the next few years, we see him going to the institutions in Surrey and Dorset and giving them the same treatment. Unlike Archbishop Dunstan and Bishop Oswald, who were bringing reform through training and natural replacement, Bishop Athelwald was fighting his religious war directly. He wasn't looking to slowly change perspectives. He was directly demanding that the church be ruled by monk bishops and staffed by monks who held no personal property whatsoever. And King Edgar was paying the price for that war but not enough to cause serious trouble for him. Edgar, despite the fight over the future of the church, and despite the fact that it might have actually been a violent one, well, Edgar was still reigning over a kingdom that was experiencing an unprecedented period of peace. There were no rebellions, 
no invasions, no wars. Edgar was earning his nickname, King Edgar the Peaceable. His son, however, wasn't. In fact, Prince Edward was throwing quite a few temper tantrums. But he was just two. Surely that would pass, right? And as for Edward's mum, well, we don't actually know what was going on with her. The record has nothing to say about what happened there. But in 965, one year after Bishop Athelwald evicted all those clerks, we're told that King Edgar got remarried. So, just like his grandfather, King Edward, Edgar now had three different consorts. And the situation with Edgar's third consort is kind of shady. And keep in mind that this marriage happened during the period where he wasn't allowed to wear a crown due to the previous shady thing he did. And the story regarding this marriage begins with an entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle for the year of 965. The entry tells us that, quote, This year King Edgar took Aelthrith for his queen, who was the daughter of Elderman Ordgar, end quote. Ordgar, by the way, was the Elderman of Devon. And you might be asking, well, what about that servant girl? Well, according to William, she was set aside, and Nun Wilfrith was still in the Abbey at Wilton. So, maybe now that Edgar was at the ripe old age of 21, just maybe he decided to be on the straight and narrow, and get a lawful wife, and try and earn back the right to wear his crown. Well, there was a catch. You see, Elthrith was already married. In fact, she was married to none other than Elderman Athelwald of East Anglia, the son of Athelstan Halfking. Though, to be fair, this isn't quite as scandalous as it sounds, because Elderman Athelwald had died, and thanks to that whole till death do us part thing, Elthrith was free to date again. But if you're thinking everything's fine, well, not so fast. William of Malmesbury had a few things to say on the matter that might color your opinions. But I do want to remind you that this story, like the other stories that we get about Edgar from William, is not without controversy. This is a story that's based on real events. Ilthrith and Athelwald do appear to have been married, and the king did marry her later on. And Elderman Athelwald does disappear from the record. But that being said... William tells a much more detailed story than those simple facts, and we can't know for certain what parts of the story are fabricated, what parts are embellished, and what parts are entirely true. It could be any or all of it, so listener beware. Oh, and to be very clear here, since the names are so similar, Elderman Athelwald is a completely different person from Archbishop Athelwald. Anyway, on with William's account of the marriage. So, King Edgar and Elderman Athelwald were, from the looks of it, fairly close. They both had connections to the monastery at Ramsey. They were both Benedictine reformers. And critically, as Elderman Athelwald was one of the most powerful nobles in England, he was a person who served in the king's inner circle. And as such, Elderman Athelwald would sometimes be tasked with carrying out the king's personal errands. And that might not sound too glamorous to us now, but in Anglo-Saxon society, it was considered a high honor. And one day, King Edgar asked Elderman Athelwald to go and investigate a prospect for him. You see, recently, the king had been hearing a rumor about the daughter of Elderman Ordgar of Devon. And the rumor was that she was a stone-cold hottie. And King Edgar liked stone-cold hotties. So, he asked Athelwald to go to Devonshire and check her out. And if she in fact was a perfect 10... 
Then he asked Athelwald to go the full bro mile and propose a royal marriage to her father. Taking up his duty to the king, Athelwald rode to Devon, and he met with Elderman Orgar's daughter. And it turned out that Elderman Orgar's daughter had a name, Ilthrith. But even more surprising than that, she was, in fact, a total 10. Or maybe an 11. Hot. She was hot. Hot enough, in fact, that Athelwald wanted her for himself. So, feeling a bit sly, he didn't tell Ordgar the real purpose of his trip. And instead, he decided to make a proposal himself. Being that it was coming from a fellow elderman, Elderman Ordgar agreed. And the marriage was sealed. Elthrith wasn't consulted. That really wasn't her business. And with that, mission accomplished. Athelwald had himself a new hot wife. And he rode back to court, and he told the king that the rumors were untrue, and that Orgar's daughter was bland, homely, and just super basic. And William tells us that the king took this pretty well, and he returned to scromping with other consorts. The trouble, though, was that Athelwald had married one of the hottest girls around. I mean, this was before Facebook, so the king wasn't going to get a relationship status update. But come on, word was bound to travel about this. And it did. And when the king found out, oh, he was pissed. I don't know what the Anglo-Saxon word for dibs was, but the king had clearly called dibs here. And Athelwald didn't just violate the iron law of dibs, he also broke the bro code. And hell hath no fury like a butthurt bro. But... Edgar played it cool. He acted like he didn't know what happened. And he sent word to Athelwald that he heard that he got married recently and he couldn't wait to meet his new wife. In fact, he and his entourage were coming to visit right now. And in response, Athelwald just about lost his mind with fear. We're told that he was, quote, terrified almost to death, end quote. And in an effort to maintain the ruse, he tried to dress his wife in drab clothing. But come on. This was Ilthrith. This girl was an 11. A shabby wimple wasn't going to do it. And so he asked his wife to behave as unbecomingly as possible in front of the king. But when the king arrived, she did nothing of the sort. She was Ilthrith, the superfine maiden from Devon. And damn it, she was here for two things. Wearing fashionable wimples and turning on kings. And she was already wearing the wimple. And surprising no one... Once King Edgar arrived and saw Ilthrith, he became thoroughly infatuated. And that infatuation, combined with the betrayal of his close confidant, festered in the mind of the king. And eventually, he decided to do something about it. He declared that he wanted to take a hunting trip, and he sent for Elderman Athelwald as a companion. They would go to a nearby wood in the south, called the Wera Well. And to make the hunting party complete, Athelwald's illegitimate son was allowed to join them. And on that hunt, the king surged with anger, and he ran Athelwald through with a spear. Then, standing over the body of his friend, the king turned to the son who had just witnessed the murder of his father, and he asked the boy how he liked this kind of sport. The boy, likely terrified that he would be next, told the king that if this made the king happy, then he was happy too. And only then did King Edgar's rage abate, and the guilt set in. In response, the king showered the now-orphaned boy with royal favor for the rest of his life. And Ilthrith, feeling guilty for being so hot that she inspired a king to murder her husband, later constructed a nunnery on the site where Athelwald had been killed. 
But guilt wasn't going to stop the king's thirst. This was King Edgar. And soon, our godly king married Aelfrith. Because come on, she was super hot. Creepy story, right? So, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, I know I have a few after all of that, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also all over the internet, Reddit, Twitter, you name it, and you can find links to all of those communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.